I'm going to read just a little bit of uh, my cheat sheet here uh, concerning Mark. It says, Mark Hanstein is the academic dean of the Southeast Institute of Biblical Studies in Knoxville, Tennessee. He's also an instructor in that preacher training school. Uh, Mark uh, received a BA degree in Bible from Oklahoma Christian, and and he uh, the list goes on, and he has a, a great deal of educational credits. Uh, he uh, is also uh, participating in evangelistic campaigns in the United States, in Australia, Bermuda, the Philippines, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu. Uh, also, South Africa. South Africa wasn't mentioned there. You, uh, uh, one not the, South Africa. I've forgotten where else, but yeah, so, I'm old now. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, not as old as me, but just. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'll, I'll tell you a story here in just a moment about uh, about Mark. And uh, <clears throat> uh, he's married to former Lee Lanier. They have two children, son Will and wife uh, Jenny, live in Knoxville, Tennessee, where Will is the director of the Southeast Institute of Biblical Studies. Their daughter and son-in-law, Lauren Bart Warren, Bart's with us this morning, live in Glasgow, Kentucky, where Bart preaches with the South Green Congregation. Hensteins have five grandchildren. I've still got you on that one. Yeah, I've got ten, ten uh, grandchildren and 20 greats. So <clears throat> let me just note something concerning Mark and this is a this is an account that goes back before I even had met Mark. Uh, we had a, a director of the school and uh, his wife uh, they'd come from South Africa and they took a group back to South Africa to do some uh, campaign work and uh, I was talking to to her, uh, and I was asking how the campaign went, and uh, she said it really went well. And I said, well, I understand Mark Hanstein went with you on that particular trip. And she said, yes, he did. And I said, being interested in what was happening in, with mission work, I asked her, uh, what uh, what was that like? Uh, how did Mark do? And she said, Mark just did wonderfully well. And the reason why is because he is such a gentleman. And the beautiful thing about being a Christian gentleman is that you're going to fit in, or gentlewoman, you're going to fit into any culture you ever work with if you keep that in mind. And Mark is not only that kind of gentleman, but he's a Christian gentleman, and he's a fine Bible scholar, and a good friend of mine. And uh, so at this time, Mark Hanstein. Praise the Lord! Louie, I didn't hear you. <laughs> You're going deaf, too. <laughs> And here we go. <laughs> you know, I, I probably say this Saturday night as well, or something similar anyway. Um, I look around the room, I, just being in this room even, just brings back mm -hmm. a flood of memories. And I look out at so many of you 
and uh, a flood of memories. I, I think I recognize most of you, but things have changed. You've gotten older, uh, <laughs> I guess. And uh, but you, this this is a good church, and this is a good school. Uh, one of the the great things uh, that I was ever privileged to do was to be part of the school here and part of the eldership here for so many years. And I look at Dave. I don't do this, Dave. I don't know why it's happening. But with great fondness and love and appreciation, not only did we work together uh, in the school, but we were elders together. And I look over at Ernie with great fondness as we worked together and labored as elders together. You know, we did a lot of good work, fellas. We really did as elders. Um, and it was just my privilege and delight to hang on to your coattails, as it were, and get the Lord's work done as we tried to watch out for the souls of the people in this church. And look over at uh, Denny Petrillo, who I'm really looking forward to introducing later today, incidentally. Um, I'm going to spend the afternoon working on that introduction, by the way. And uh, we've been friends a long, long time. And uh, that's really an understatement. And then I think about my time here. So many people I know... Uh, and Dave mentioned uh, something about my education. You know, the greatest education I got in my life was when I was here as a teacher in the school and as an elder in this church. I learned. This isn't on my notes, so I don't know what's going on with me, but uh, I learned so much from the men that I worked with here and the women that were part of our program as well, from elders and elders' wives. And I am a better man, far and away, than I would have ever anticipated. See Donnie? Donnie and I were fellow elders for about, what, 10 days, something like that anyway. <laughs> and uh, there may be others that I'm overlooking, and I sure don't mean to overlook you. And it's just, I cannot express adequately uh, my love and appreciation for all of you men. There's John Warrens, one of our other staff members at the time, for what you did for me. And you didn't even know it. We love you back, sir. Appreciate that. And I'm, I'm a better man because I was here. And you students of this school and you alumni, of this school, I hope you will eventually learn to appreciate what you have in this school and those of you who are members of this church, what you have in this church. We did, and there's Mike, I didn't recognize you. You've changed. <laughs> Not according to the picture I have on Facebook from about 10 years ago. So, uh, and, you know, I can't say enough about Michael, who's been so good to me. And this is all unplanned, so uh, 
I've taken five minutes of the time that I'm going to ignore the length of anyway, but uh, (laughs) we need to speak about the omniscience of God. Probably would be appropriate just to say, read the chapter in the book and let's go to lunch, but uh, (laughs) leave it at that. At any rate, I just, I, I have the greatest admiration. There's Carolyn. By the way, Carolyn, you may not recognize this, but I got this from you and uh, after after Warren w- was gone. And I still have it and still use it and cherish it, <laughs> all of that. And uh, you didn't come here for Old Home Week. <laughs> I'm surprised you're here at all, but... Uh, Thank you for coming, and I hope I have something that I can uh, give to you that will be of benefit to your faith. It's all too clear that uh, faith in the God of the Scriptures is in serious uh, decline in Western culture. Several studies in recent years indicate this. A Pew Research survey, for example, found that one-third of Americans say that they do not believe in the God of the Bible. The same survey said that only 56% profess faith in God as described in the Bible. Young people are less inclined in our country to claim belief in God of the Bible. And highly educated Americans are less likely to believe in the God of the Bible. And while believing in a higher power, few religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, believe in God as described in the Bible. Then you go to Western Europe. And most non-practicing Christians believe in God, but not necessarily as described in the Bible. Concerning the omniscience of God, Pew Research reported that the beliefs that God is all-loving, all-knowing, or all-powerful are more common among older people than young adults, and among Republicans than Democrats. Interesting. This should not surprise us, but it is alarming. But it's no surprise given the the, uh, rise of secularism in our culture. Many reject the truth about God, the omniscient God, because they're unaware of what the Bible teaches on the matter, or simply put, they don't care. Omniscience is a term that comes from a Latin word that means to know. And the idea is to know everything or knowledge of everything. To say that God is omniscient is to say that God is all-knowing. Thus, as the Bible teaches, his knowledge is infinite, perfect, and unlimited. A more technical definition from Strong is God's perfect and eternal knowledge of all things which are objects of knowledge, whether they be actual or possible, past, present, or future. It's been correctly said that God's omnipresence, God's omnipotence, are clearly involved in God's omniscience. All you have to do is read the 139th Psalm to see that that's the case. Consideration of the Lord's attributes, such as the fact that He's eternal, immutable, truth, holy, just, righteous, and love, argue for His omniscience as well. All this provides a clearer perspective on the one who is a God of gods and the Lord of kings, as Daniel uh, reflects in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 47. Our sovereign God knows everything there is to know about himself and about his creation. Note this, that because he's omniscient, there's nothing God needs to learn or anything he cannot know. God not only knows all things, but he's always conscious of all that he knows. The scriptures 
definitely teach that God is this way. He's omniscient. The psalmist exclaimed in Psalm 147 and verse 5, Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Isaiah asked, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? You see, God does not need to grasp anything or be advised on any matter, for his knowledge is complete. That's omniscience. As the Hebrew writer said, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to him uh, with whom we have to do, Hebrews 4.12 and 13. In 1837, Johann Hay captured the truth of God's omniscience in the words of a familiar spiritual song. He wrote, Can you count the stars of evening that are shining in the sky? Can you count the clouds that daily over all the world go by? God the Lord, who doth not slumber, keepeth all their boundless number. The psalmist puts it even better. He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Psalm 147, verse 4. Thus God speaks of the Pleiades, Orion, and the bear with its satellites in Job 38. In fact, Job 38 through chapter 41 gives a good view of the range of the knowledge of God concerning his creation, both animate and inanimate. It's no surprise, then, that the Bible says, For every beast of the field or the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. Psalm 50, beginning at verse 10. Not even one small bird falls to the ground without God knowing it. God's awareness and knowledge of his creation is so complete that he can feed all the birds on the earth so that they have no need to sow, they have no need to reap, they have no need to gather into barns. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 26. Omniscience means that God knows all people, and he knows all that they do. David said, Psalm 33, verses 13 through 15, The Lord looks from heaven, he sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he who understands all their works. Again, Psalm 69, O God, it is you who knows my folly and my wrongs are not hidden from you. Solomon would add in Proverbs 5, verse 31, For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. God is omniscient. In Psalm 139, beginning at verse 1, David recognized something of the unlimited knowledge of God regarding his own life. And he wrote, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You've enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. 
such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high, and I cannot attain to it. David realized that God's knowledge of him is so extraordinary that he knows everything about his life, even even in its entirety. And this even before the Israelite king was born. He wrote Psalm 139, beginning of verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when it yet there was none of them. Omniscience means that God is acutely aware of the challenges and the difficulties we face in life. Even down to the smallest detail, our omniscient God knows us. The awestruck David said, What is man that you think of him, and a son of man that you are concerned about him? Hagar, think of her in Genesis, alone in the wilderness, learned that the Lord has given heed to your affliction. Hagar was amazed that God saw her and knew of her predicament, and she exclaimed, You are a God who sees. In another situation, even when Hagar thought she was all alone and all things in her life were hopeless, God was aware of it and cared for her in her distress. Because God's knowledge of those he created in his image is so thorough, he hears our cries. And he knows what we feel. And Dan, he knows that even before we ask. Mm -hmm. That's our God who loves us. Omniscience means that God knows our hearts. God knows our motives. Elihu reminded Job, for his eyes are upon the ways of a man, and he and he sees all his steps. Job 34, verse 21. David told Solomon in 1 Chronicles 29, 9, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father, and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Since God searches the hearts and tests the minds of people, he is able to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds, Jeremiah 17.10. You know, God sees and will reward our giving, He will reward our prayers and our fasting even when we do that in secret, according to Matthew chapter 6. In in the person of Jesus, we see a glimpse of the one who knows our hearts and sees our motives because Jesus, as John 2 says, knows man. Thus, during his ministry, he could challenge people in in, uh, light of their thoughts before they said or did anything. Foreknowledge is one aspect of God's omniscience. Think about this for a minute. Foreknowledge simply means that God knows what will happen in the future. He just knows because he's omniscient. Our God is as familiar with the future as he is with the present and the past. And the prophet Isaiah recorded, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, 
and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. The prophet of the prophet Daniel said that, that, that God is he who reveals the profound and the hidden things, Daniel 2.22. Thus, predictive prophecy is a matter of the omniscience of God. Think about that. Because it's no surprise, really, that over 300 specific fulfilled prophecies regarding Jesus can be identified in the Bible, in addition to many other prophecies regarding specific people, specific places, and specific events. Because God knows the future, he could call Josiah by name and tell of the things that he would do some 300 years before the man was born. When Rebecca was in distress, being pregnant with twins, and didn't understand what all this pain and stuff was about, God said, in your belly are two nations, and on and on, speaking of Jacob and Esau. And what God said to her in that day was exactly what happened in the history as they lived out their lives together. Through Daniel, God informed the Babylonian Nebuchadnezzar of kingdoms that would follow that pagan king's own, particularly the, the eternal kingdom, which the Lord would establish more than 500 years later which would crush and put an end to all these kingdoms of men. Daniel chapter 2, beginning at verse 27. Hundreds of years before any of it occurred, God revealed to Daniel detailed predictions regarding the Roman Empire, chapter 7, and the Greek Empire, chapter 8. Later, in apocalyptic style, a detailed prophecy concerning the coming of the Anointed One and His crucifixion is given to this same prophet, along with a prediction regarding the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. This is Daniel 9. The Lord spoke of Cyrus by name more than 150 years before the man was born and uh, mentioned the Persian king's efforts in behalf of the Jewish captives long before any of it occurred. Uh, occurred. Now, how can God do that? In a word or two, he's omniscient. Omniscience means that God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil, Ecclesiastes 12:14. Since God knows the works of the wicked, he can fairly and legitimately render judgment upon all, Job 34, verse 25. David knew this when he asked, Search me, O God, know my heart, try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. This is Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. And then in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, the Apostle John saw a vision of the final judgment. And this is what he wrote. He said, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And no place was found for them, and... And I saw the dead, the great, and the small standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And uh, the dead were, and, and which is the book of life, rather, and the dead were judged from the things uh, in, uh, which are written in, in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the uh, lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, 
he was thrown in the lake of fire. God's eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of man. And he can justly and rightly uh, give to each person according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Jeremiah 32 and verse 19. Omniscience means that the Lord knows them who are his. 2 Timothy 2.19. And what's interesting is that God knew before the foundation of the world who would uh, meet the conditions of the salvation that he set forth. In addition to that, uh, we would say in, in, in that sense, at least, he chose or elected those who he knew would obey him. And in Romans 8, 29 and 30, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. These whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God wrote their names in the Lamb's Book of Life from the foundation of the world. And the amazing thing is that God, who knows all this and did all this, makes this election available to everyone. The Lord, of course, desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And to this end, he calls everyone through the gospel. Now, in the gospels, Jesus would say, uh, Matthew chapter uh, 22, many are called, but few are chosen. What Jesus is referring to is the fact that many are not chosen because of their own unwillingness to comply with the conditions of pardon, the conditions of God's grace. The election of God is that those who are in Christ, those who have a relationship with Jesus, are the ones to whom he will extend his grace. Because he's omniscient, he knows who you are, simply put. Well, how does a person establish a relationship with Jesus and receive God's grace? Well, those who hear the gospel, believe it, repent of their sins, confess Christ, and are baptized into Christ are those to whom God's saving grace is extended. That's what the Bible teaches very clearly. And we should know that, of course, and particularly we should continue to teach that. Those in Christ, you see, are those whom God has chosen. The church of Christ. You need to understand that's not a name. Rather, that's a description of the relationship and the description of ownership. The church of Christ, then, is composed of those who are chosen, those who are elect. Well, uh, there are some challenges to this idea of omniscience. If God's omniscient, for example, then how do you explain Bible passages that at least on the surface suggest that he's not? For example, in Genesis chapter 18, 20, 21, uh, God says the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. Their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to the outcry which has come to me. And if not, I will know. And another concerns Abraham's uh, attempt to sacrifice his son Isaac to God. In Genesis 22 and verse 12, the text uh, says, uh, The angel of the Lord said, Don't stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. 
Several denominational theologians believe that such passages teach that God is ignorant of some things. And this situation has challenged some of our preachers in the past as well. T.W. Brents, for example, contended that God could have foreknown all things, but that he chose not to know some things, which is, uh, with no disrespect to Dr. Brents, is an interesting trick because you have to know what you've chosen not to know, basically. And that's that seems to be a problem, at least in the argument. And so uh, uh, for Brents, God... Uh, did not actually know the conditions of Sodom and Gomorrah until he checked it out. And God did not know whether Abraham would pass the test of offering his son until the old man raised the knife and was ready to slay Isaac. And Brother Brents would suggest that, that God could have known these things beforehand, but intentionally limited his knowledge to the extent that he had to learn from this experiment. And as you can already see, there are several problems with this view First, it denies the clear Bible teaching that God indeed is omniscient. Secondly, it fails to observe that passages like we have looked at are cases of accommodative language. And that happens several times, particularly in Genesis. In Scripture, there are passages that speak of God's eyes, God's ears, God's hands, God's feet, God seeing. God walking, God coming, God going. Yet all people recognize these not as literal descriptions, but rather um, God expressing himself in a way to accommodate our understanding because we're limited as human beings. To understand the passages in Genesis 18 and 22 then is to recognize them as cases of this kind of accommodative language, thus harmonizing them with the clear teaching that God is omniscient. There's a view that's growing in some popularity anyway called open theism, which expresses uh, something similar. The basic idea of open theism is that God simply doesn't know the future and can be caught off guard by the actions of people. This view appeals to such passages as God regrets creating mankind in Genesis 6 or making Saul the king over Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 15. One writer put it this way. He said, divine omniscience is dynamic in that God constantly acquires knowledge. Now think about that statement a minute. That's a, that's a contradictory statement. God's omniscience is something where he constantly acquires knowledge. If he's acquiring knowledge, he's not omniscient, plain and simple. And so God is constantly acquiring knowledge of which possible future actions creatures suggest, uh, select rather to actualize. That's just a nonsensical statement. But what do you expect from theologians? <laughs> you know, if God constantly acquires knowledge, then the Bible teaching on omniscience is false. Now think of the implication of that for the Bible. You know, another challenge to students of Scripture is if God is omniscient, how is it that he can know the future and know beforehand the outcome of events unless he predetermines these things? But think about it. Foreknowledge does not militate against the free will of anybody. You probably recognize this in your own life because you know people and you know a certain set of 
factors occur that people will react in certain ways. You didn't manipulate or predetermine anything. You just know because you know the people and you know how they react to certain events. We all are familiar with that. And so to suggest that omniscience means predetermination is just simply false. Because to know that, uh, or, or to suggest that God uh, knows what will happen does not make him responsible for what happens. Think about Judas. By inspiration, David prophesied a thousand years beforehand of Judas's betrayal of Jesus in the book of Psalms. The free will of Judas was not overruled by God, even though God knew the terrible circumstances beforehand. In fact, the Bible says that it was Judas who knew the place where Jesus would be in Gethsemane, John 18, verse 2. It was Judas who obtained the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. It was Judas who was betraying him and was standing with them. These actions taken by Judas, though foreknown by God, were uh, simply the free will choice made by the treacherous man himself. It's no wonder then that Judas acknowledged Matthew 27 and verse 4 that I have sinned. I have sinned. Not God made me do it or anything like that, but I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. You know, Calvinists see God as completely sovereign over every aspect of his creation. As they reckon, nothing happens that has not already been determined by God. So if Jehovah foreknows an event, it must occur because he foreordained it. And this means that God does not simply know the future uh, for anything or, or, or anybody. Rather, he already decided what the specific outcomes would be. For everything that happens, happens because God made it so, and God caused it. But there are several problems with that view. One is that it makes God ultimately responsible for sin and its consequences. And that's unbiblical. A second uh, problem is that God arbitrarily and unfairly chooses who specifically will be saved and who specifically will be lost eternally. And the Bible doesn't teach that either. Calvinism proposes that unless a person is prompted in some mystical direct operation of the Holy Spirit, that one will not uh, be saved. He may want to be saved. And unless God arbitrarily gives him the will, the faith, and the repentance necessary to receive the benefits of Christ's propitiatory sacrifice, he will not be saved. A person has no free will in the matter and no active role of any kind regarding their own salvation. Others uh, receive no such inner spiritual prompting, and therefore these persons are lost. They're not saved. Yet the Bible clearly teaches that the call of God comes through the gospel, and that anyone who obeys the gospel can be saved. As we think of the implications of, of omniscience, the uh, omniscience of God means that the Bible is true in everything it says and teaches. And the reason why is it came from the God whose knowledge is unlimited. Um, in a world that we live in, you know, full of chaos and uncertainty, when many cast doubt on the scriptures as God's word, faithful people will recognize that in knowing and obeying the Bible, the direction of your life is right and true, and your soul 
is secure. Whatever the Bible says is right. We may not like it. We may not want to accept it. But whatever the Bible says is right. And we can trust it. And thus we should. The Bible's trustworthy because the omniscient God who gave it is trustworthy. So to adequately uh, prepare for eternity, all of us must seriously study and apply the scriptures. It's Paul who said of the scriptures, they are able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Acts 20 and verse 32. The omniscience of God serves as a threat and a warning to uh, the wicked. As we stated previously, God knows every sin committed by everybody. And the sad thing is that in dealing with sins, many try to ignore them, explain them away, compensate for them, justify them, and run from them. But the fact remains that my eyes are on all their ways and they are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. Jeremiah 16 and verse 17. Sin needs to be dealt with correctly and biblically. One wants to be saved, for you can't hide them from God. The omniscient God and his omniscience, I should say, should motivate every sinner to repent of his sins and to obey the plan of salvation so that he can be forgiven of his sins. God's omniscience serves to hearten the faithful Christian. It's a great comfort to me to know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Romans 8, beginning of verse 31. You know, life sometimes seems so uncertain, <laughs> yet we trust in, in the God who knows the future and who tells us to live in hope. Our God is aware of our difficulties. Our God cares for us. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 34, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. Our God is near to those who call upon him and to all uh, who call upon him in truth, Psalm 145, and verse 18. Our hope, you see, is legitimate because God, whose knowledge is limitless, neither uh, makes a rash promise nor one that, that he's unable to keep. The promises of God are solid, and your hope and mine is legitimate. It's interesting that to consider that when Jesus comes again, no one, uh, no faithful child of God will be overlooked or forgotten or forsaken. This seems to be a situation that challenged the, Thess- the Thessalonian brethren in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So Paul wrote to assure them of the fact that the dead in Christ will rise first. And when Jesus comes again, God will bring with them. Uh, with him, those who have died in the faith. And Jesus' own uh, resurrection is a guarantee of our own eternal life. The righteous will be rewarded. The wicked will be punished. And the omniscience of God should motivate every one of us in this room today to greater faithfulness and trust in our omniscient Savior, Jesus Christ. The omniscience of God means that he works providentially in behalf of all of his children. Temptation, common to all, is limited by the God who also provides a way of escape, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Think about the implications of that statement there. 
That simply means that God needs to know all the strengths and weaknesses of each of his children. I don't know how many of us are in this room now. It looks to me like about three, four hundred. I, I don't know for sure. Uh, at least that's what I'm going to tell them back in Knoxville. And uh, uh, at any rate, but the, the amount of people in this room, we have our strengths, we have our weaknesses, our challenges and all that, the temptations that come, the different temptations that come to you that may not come to me and vice versa. And God has to know us so well, he has to know those strengths and weaknesses of each of us as individuals. And then just, you know, multiply that as you think about faithful children of God the world over. Not only that, but he must know when the devil strikes at each one of us. And not only that, he must know how strong the temptation is and and also what way of escape must be provided. And he can do it because he's omniscient. That's exactly the case. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.16. The omniscience of God means that he really does hear and answer our prayers. In 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7, Peter said, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you in, in due time or at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him. Because he cares for you. We're told in Romans 8, 26 and 27, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. And because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The omniscience of God means that He knows what's best for each of his children. The the challenges of life, think about that a minute, seek to distract us from God. You get older, there are going to be more challenges. Dave can tell you. And I can too, actually. But they seek to, to, to distract us from God. Conflicting worldviews seek to confuse our thinking and deceive us. Sin seeks to pull us away from from God and and, and destroy us. Satan uses any and all means he can to wreck our faith. However, the trials we face are used by God to strengthen us spiritually and make us more effective for service in his kingdom. The commands and the prohibitions given by God are for our eternal benefit as well. So, essential to God's very being and character is this attribute of omniscience. Simply put, if the Lord was not omniscient, he would not be God. Because his knowledge is limitless, there isn't anything that is beyond his knowledge. Nothing escapes his notice, because God's knowledge is complete, infinite, and perfect. The Apostle Paul said it well when he wrote, Oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable his ways. Romans 11, verse 33. According to the clock, I have 10 seconds yet to burn, so I'll uh, do something with it. I'll pack up and leave. Thank you very much for your kind attention.